Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be discussing letters about postpartum depression, wedding planning anxiety, and what to do when you think neurodivergent people are getting away with way too much. Maybe get over yourself. I don't know. I'll see if my guest agrees. Here to help me out is Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist and the author of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and the Atlantic's Dear Therapist column. She also co-hosts the Dear Therapist podcast, which I'm just obsessed with. If you love this podcast, you will be too. You basically get to be in other people's business and hear about their problems, except on that podcast, the, the letter writer is actually there answering questions. So it's so satisfying and interesting to listen to. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So before we get started, I want to go ahead and ask you to give one piece of unsolicited advice to our listeners. I think the one piece of unsolicited advice that I would give to everybody on the planet is to be kinder to yourself. Hmm. And people feel like that's really soft. But I think that we have this voice in our head that is playing all the time that's extremely Mm self-critical. And I want people to ask themselves, is it kind? Is it true? Mm -hmm. And is it useful? Mm. And if it doesn't meet those three criteria, then change the radio station in your head. I love that. Um, I always think about the idea that, especially if you're going through a hard time, you should treat yourself the way you would treat a good friend. Um, So that's sort of like advice along the same lines that I think about a lot. Yeah. And it doesn't mean don't hold yourself accountable or take responsibility. It just means be kind to yourself as you do that. Great advice. Okay. Lori and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudyplus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Lori Gottlieb. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled, Entitled Grandma is Killing Me. I come from a toxic family, a narcissistic mother, and an emotionally absent father who always sided with my mom, even when she blatantly abused me. I've been in therapy for over a decade, and I'm really proud of how much healing I've done. A big part of that has been learning healthy boundaries. The issue is my in-laws. While my marriage is great, my mother-in-law is not. She treats her children like free therapists, drops in for visits without asking, and then offers unsolicited help. For example, coming to help us move, uninvited, then going through boxes of my things and tossing what she didn't like. She regularly makes comments about my weight and tells me how I should dress. Because of this, I don't go out of my way to spend time with her. Last week, my mother-in-law told me that she's losing her son because of me, and that she's heartbroken that I don't spend more time with her. I have agreed to two visits a year with her. He is free to visit and call as often as he likes, which he does far more often than me. What do I owe my mother-in-law? After all the work I've done, it's hard to be told that what I perceive to be healthy boundaries is, in fact, the severing of a family. 
So, Lori, we're here talking about people's problems every week, and I have no real qualifications. I just share my opinion, and I get away with it. Um, You're the first therapist who I've had on the podcast, so I just can't wait to take advantage of your actual authority and knowledge here. So, big picture question. What's up with mothers-in-law? Why are they such a huge theme in people's interpersonal dilemmas? Well, I think so many times we haven't worked out whatever our own issues are with our own parents. Mm. And then we now have another set of parents to deal with. So part of it is what the in-laws are doing. And part of it is the big feelings that come up when a nerve gets touched that feels similar to something we experienced when we were younger. Mm. So in this case, for example, um, there's a saying, we marry our unfinished business If we don't really work through stuff from childhood, we end up finding it again in adulthood. And that's completely outside of our awareness. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the mother-in-law is very much like her mother and very much thinking of herself, doesn't really take the perspective of somebody else, does what she wants. And the husband is in the role of what was her father, the very passive person who kind of goes along with it. It doesn't sound like he's really engaging much with her around hearing that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I'm looking at the letter and I didn't even make the connection to the first sentence that said, I come from a toxic family, a narcissistic mother. So you're right. Like this is the same type of personality just repeating itself. Does the letter writer need to heal her relationship with her own mother before she can address this? Or is there like a shortcut? Well, I think she can do both at the same time, which is learning about what boundaries really look like. Mm -hmm. There's a big misconception that we have about boundaries. And you see this on social media all the time. Someone will say, you know, I set this boundary and that person didn't listen. So I'm cutting them out of my life. And boundaries are not what the other person has to do. Boundaries are really a request, but the boundary you have to hold is with yourself. Mm. If this person can't accommodate my request... And you have to realize, is it a reasonable request too? That's another thing. Um, But if this person can't accommodate what I have kind of vetted and realized, you know, this is a reasonable request, then what will I do? What is my boundary with myself? So I don't think her mother-in-law is really somebody who's going to understand her boundaries. Right. And so the steps of setting boundaries are one, making the request, but two, being really consistent in your response. So it sounds like what she decided to do was to say, I'm just going to do two visits a year. But that doesn't really help the situation. It doesn't seem like she ever necessarily set the boundary. Like, I don't, I don't read that she ever said, you know, stop dropping in without asking, please, we won't be here or stop doing our unpacking for us or I I didn't see the part where the request was made to stop behaving like this. It seemed like she just jumped to pulling back. Right, right. So I think there are two things for this letter writer. One is that what is she going to do? And two, there's the relational piece with her husband that kind of recreates the father situation. So in the first case, she, I think, should say to her mother-in-law, and again, this, this might be where the husband comes in, but... She should say to her mother-in-law next time there's a comment about her weight or the way she dresses, you know, I'm really happy with my weight and I love the way that I dress. Thank you so much for your concern, but I'm really happy with it. And Mm -hmm. it bothers me when you mention it because I'm really happy with it. So if you mention it again, I'm going to end the visit or I'm going to end the conversation. Or even could it be 
that hurts my feelings when you say that. And it bothers me when you mention it. It doesn't even have to be like, I'm happy with it or defending it. It's just like, that hurts. That's painful when you say it. It bothers me. Can you please stop? I think that there's a, an unconscious way that the mother-in-law gets power by hurting people. Oh. And so I don't want her to come from a place of weakness. I want her to come from a place of strength. And the place of strength is, this isn't a problem in my life. I'm really happy with it. I understand that you're just trying to be helpful, but I don't need help here. And it it does hurt my feelings because it it it's something I'm already happy with. So next time you bring that up, please don't bring it up. And if you do, I'm just going to end the conversation because I want us to have a really good relationship and this is getting in the way of it. That's so good. And if you put it that way, you know, this is getting in the way of us. I want to have a relationship with you, but this is getting in the way of it. So I want to preserve our relationship. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to end the conversation so that the next time we can have a better time together. I'm over here nodding and- furiously. This is just <laughs> so smart. <laughs> And the thing is consistency. You have to do it literally every time. If you even miss it once, then the other person thinks, oh, look, I got away with it there. Mm-hmm. So you, every single time, and it, you don't say it in a in a sharp tone. You don't say it with irritation. That's really mm-hmm. the key too, is you, you're just very friendly because this isn't about you at all. This right. is about her. So it's, it's, it's almost like when you're talking to a child and the child can really trigger you, mm-hmm. you have to really stay regulated, right. even though someone's trying to dysregulate you. So you can just very be very friendly. Oh, I'm sorry, you, you brought up my weight. But you know, I want to have a really good time. So I'm going to leave or I'm going to hang up now. But I'm really looking forward to getting together next time. I really like that. And then I think, we have to face the issue of the mother-in-law's reaction. I'm so glad you brought up like the misconception, I guess, in popular culture, or mainstream culture, or among, among us lay people about boundaries. Because I think you're right that on social media and everywhere, we hear people talking about setting boundaries. And everyone kind of gets what that means, even if they don't do it perfectly. But there's not a lot of conversation about what to do if people react to your boundaries really poorly. So here I'm, I'm seeing the letter writer say, you know, I've set this boundary of two visits a year, which maybe wasn't the ideal boundary, but it, it's what she did. And she can't handle the mother-in-law's reaction, which is to this like emotional blackmail. You're taking me away from my son. You're hurting my feelings. What do you do when you, when you set that boundary? Say, if you say, I'm going to end the conversation now, you know, I'm happy with my weight. I'm going to go ahead and get off the phone because I want to preserve our relationship. What do you do then if the mother-in-law says, oh my God, you're killing me. I'm going to be depressed now. You're hurting my feelings. You're keeping me away from my son. Like, how do you, what does a boundary look like when you get that kind of response? Mm-hmm. If she said something like that, I would say, actually, I'm trying to preserve our relationship. I'm mm-hmm. trying to keep everybody close and I want to find a way to do that. You know, when people threaten things like you are making me feel this way, right, with a boundary, then it's, it's very easy to say, well, it depends what they're doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's like, you're making me depressed, yeah. right? You can say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not really someone, I don't know really how to help you with that, but maybe there's someone you can talk to. Mm. That's really good. So just in a nice of- way, not in a, not in a way like something's wrong with you and you're mentally, you know, <laughs> unstable, Right. but just, but just, oh, wow, I'm so sorry. You're feeling that way. I'm not qualified to help you with that. I don't know how to help you with that. I wish I could, but maybe there's someone you could talk to who would be much better at helping you with that. Mm-hmm. 
And and even in the letter, she says, you know, she uses her children as therapists. Right. That's another opportunity for, um, you know, maybe there's someone you could talk to. Right. Who could, be, who could help you more. Right. It's not my job. Like the boundary is like, I'm not in charge of your mental health. I'm in charge yeah. of you not, not making mean comments to me or walking away when you do. Do you think what do I owe my mother-in-law is the right question here? Or is there a different question the letter writer should be grappling with? I think the question is really what's going on with her and her husband, Hmm. because it seems like she just is in this position where she's not getting a lot of support. Right. You know, maybe the husband says, okay, if you only want to see her two times a year, that's fine. But no one's really talking about, well, is there another way to do this? And it doesn't sound like the husband's really backing her up. Right. Because what she's asking for is very reasonable. Please let us know if you are going to stop by. Please don't make comments about my appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't sound like the mother-in-law is is using... I mean, if the son is fine with the mother, if with his own mother talking to him about her problems, that's for him to deal with. Right. That's fine. Um, but I think the things that affect her are really things that affect the marriage. And he doesn't have her back. And so if they can come in in a united front, I think he's probably afraid of his mother because she then pulls the guilt, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you're, you're leaving me. You're not, you don't care about me. Look at what's happening. Your wife is awful. Those kinds of things. Right. Your wife is not compassionate. Um, he needs to back up and say, no, my wife is lovely. Mm-hmm. And I think these are reasonable things. And she's trying to have a relationship with you. And it, bo- it hurts me when you hurt her. Right. And if he can say that to his mom, it hurts me when you hurt her. So mom, I need you to stop doing these things that are hurting her. I agree with her. Right. And it seems so much more sustainable to try to get through to the mother with that than for the letter writer to limit her visits to twice a year, which just seems kind of arbitrary. And I'm sure those yes. two visits are still pretty painful. Um, so it doesn't feel like a solution. Um, and it doesn't feel great for her marriage either. So I actually think like in your script where you said, you know, I'm going to walk away if you talk to me like that, because I want us to have a good relationship. I actually think that's like sincere. Like there is a possibility for a stronger relationship here where the visits don't have to be limited to one Christmas and summer. And that's it. You know, they could see each other more if the mother-in-law would actually honor these, these authentic boundaries, not these sort of arbitrary boundaries. Right. Yeah. I remember I got a a letter to my um, dear therapist column where a parent wrote in and said, I don't want to have a boundary relationship with my daughter. She's setting all these boundaries. (laughs) And I had to explain every relationship is boundaried. Right. Even the best of relationships are boundaried. We can't just treat people any way we want without considering the impact that we have on another person. So I think for people like the mother-in-law and like the letter writer's own mother, they don't often consider other people. They feel like they're being wounded by Mm -hmm. other people without realizing that they're actually the ones who are wounding someone else. Right. And a boundary isn't a punishment. It's like a path toward people being able to relate without being wounded, right? Exactly. Our next question is titled, Patience Running Low. I expect I'll get reamed for this, but here it goes. For context, I am Gen X and consider myself substantially liberal. However, I find myself more than annoyed as every rude characteristic has now become a diagnosed disability. 
time blindness. With today's technology and custom notifications going off every other minute, come on. I totally get neurodivergence as a thing. I'm enmeshed in the autistic community and ADHD, anxiety, and other mental illness are abundant. But must we make allowances for every misbehavior? I understand showing grace for those who truly cannot help themselves, but what about my right to not be insulted, not be stood up, or not have more work thrust upon me because of someone's executive function disorder? I can't help feeling how I feel. So I guess my question is, how do I get past these feelings? I hate feeling so ungenerous, but I also don't want to walk on eggshells because I made a joke about the weather and someone is now having a meltdown. How should I reframe this to just let it go? So I think I know what inspired this letter. Um, for, I don't, Lori, I don't know if you heard about this, but for those who aren't super online, recently someone on TikTok shared that they were neurodivergent and that they had asked, I believe, an employer about whether they could make any accommodations for time blindness, which I guess is a condition that causes you to have a really hard time when it comes to getting places on time, including work. So there was a lot of pushback about the idea that there would be a, an accommodation for that and people weighed in and said that it was a legitimate thing associated with ADD. And everyone's sort of going back and forth about whether the kids are just out of control and, you know, everyone's acting like a victim and whether people need to just grow up and be on time. So I, I think that's the background here. And I guess I would just ask this person, what exactly about that bothers them so deeply when it doesn't seem like there's any direct impact on their life? How does this letter strike you? I think that the direct impact on their life is that they're often left waiting or they're stood up and it wastes their time. It feels rude and disrespectful to them. This thing about, I don't know what they meant about, I make a joke about the weather, but I think the general sentiment there is that anything that I say could be construed as insulting someone who is neurodivergent mm -hmm. in some way that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think there's a balance here. And I, I think that, yes, obviously, people who are neurodivergent need to have accommodations to help them function in the way that they need to function for whatever they're wanting to do. But at the same time, if it starts to impact other people, where things start to feel unfair, like this person seemed to imply that they have extra work because the other person can't do it. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing that the other person is getting accommodations, but it's another thing that this person now has extra work. Or it's right. another thing that this person is now sitting in, in the restaurant waiting for 45 minutes. Right? right. So lots of people have ADHD and all these different, you know, with time blindness. Um, but yes, there are ways that people learn to function with them. Right. So what they were saying, you know, yes, you can set your phone to, you know, go off at a certain time. There, there are all kinds, you know, there, technology is great because it can help in so many ways with a lot of these things. And so if people are not using those, then it's kind of like, okay, it's one thing if you have this problem that you can't function in the same way, but then what are you going to do about it? And so if people are not really availing themselves of all the ways that, that they can function, then I think that's where the frustration comes in. And I also think the language issue that this person brings up, mm -hmm. you know, there's this, there's my son who's, who's 17 often says, you know, just because you're offended doesn't mean it's offensive. Mm. And, um, and, 
and he's not talking about like racism and, you know, homophobia and things like that. He's talking about like a comment about the weather, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Sometimes people don't know. They're not trying to be offensive. And so I think that there has to be more tolerance on both sides, more tolerance for people who are neurodivergent, but more tolerance for people who also are inconvenienced by this. So you're very compassionate to the letter writer. I was less so because I just felt like this letter came from a place of like complaining about where society is overall. Um, Sort of like the say, everyone's on their phone too much. Everyone's too sensitive. Everyone's triggered too easily. What are we even doing? And I'm like, okay, but how is it actually affecting? If the letter writer had said to me, I'm working on this project at work and my colleague suffers from time blindness. Therefore, my manager told me um, I can't expect to have any meetings on time. I would say, okay, well, there's a solution here. And the solution has to do with um, defining your role and having a boundary around your work and what you can do and your job description, rather than sort of policing how other people think about their neurodivergence and their abilities and disabilities. I just always... I don't know, when people start to worry about everyone out there with all their problems getting out of control, I don't think it's a healthy path to go down. And I just don't see it leading to like a satisfying resolution because it's really hard to control sort of where society is going and these trends, right? I think it's much more productive to look at how it's directly affecting you and then look at how you can address those particular situations. Yeah, I think that's really wise. I think that the the focus is really on what does it mean that this person can't be there on time? Mm-hmm. And then and then also, I think, you know, how do people respond when you say something that you didn't know was hurtful to the other person? So right. if the person who was hurt responds in a really aggressive way, that often perpetuates the cycle of people like the letter writer feeling like, well, I can't say anything. Mm -hmm. But if the person handles it and says, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but when you said this, this is what it means to me. I think people generally react really well to that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I always say that if I find myself being really defensive about something, it often tells me that I actually do feel like I did something a little wrong. And if I'm just totally caught off guard, oh, I said it's cloudy. And you said that that was upsetting to you for some reason related to your mental health. I didn't know about, I'm just going to be like, I'm so sorry. I won't do that anymore. Cause there's there's no defensiveness. If you really, if you really feel like you've done absolutely nothing wrong. Um, And if you generally kind of want people to be okay and it doesn't cost you much to apologize or to change course a little bit with the way you speak, then to me, that's not an enormous burden. Yes. And I will say, you know, just because I, as a therapist, I have to go back to childhood here, but Mm -hmm. I will say that I think people who felt overly controlled as children tend Mm. to be the people who react with the most um, pushback to accommodating other people who have reasonable needs. Oh, really interesting. That's a really interesting layer on this. So yeah, letter writer, I would encourage you to think about that. And Absolutely. Whether it involves a friend being late for lunch every time or a coworker who can't be on time for meetings and meet deadlines, like assert yourself when it comes to what your needs are and like what's fair from your perspective. But I would encourage you to pull back a little bit on sort of getting really, really aggravated about what everyone out there is doing and how they're thinking about their own mental health and their own needs. Because um, I just don't think that's a path that's going to lead to really satisfying results for you aside from like ranting on the internet. 
You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Lori Gottlieb, to answer your letters. The next one is titled, Haunted by Inaction. About six months after I gave birth to my second child, I told my husband I thought I had postpartum depression and couldn't stop thinking about killing myself. I told him that I needed help, but the thought of even picking up the phone to call my doctor was so overwhelming that I needed him to help me. Telling someone felt like a relief, like help was finally on the way, except he never brought it up with me again and carried on as usual. I am a stay-at-home mother, and it was a profoundly dark and lonely time. It's a miracle I'm alive, but nobody else knows that. Three years later, I'm still stuck on my disappointment and my doubts about how my husband handled my request. He becomes angry, however, if I bring this up with him. He says he did everything he could, and I'm blowing this out of proportion. A few times, he's simply shouted, that never happened. Except it did. Recently, he admitted that he never reached out to anyone else about it. Not my doctor, my parents, my best friend who's a therapist. He never even Googled postpartum depression. I know I'm ultimately in control of my own mental health, but I do think he had some power in this situation to help me. He staunchly disagrees. He reminds me that I cried to him that night about how my children would be taken away because I'm such a terrible mother. He now uses this to shut down any discussion. I did everything I could do, but you said they would take your kids. What was I supposed to do? It still hurts that he didn't just reassure me that I'm not a terrible mother for asking for mental health care, or that he wouldn't let anybody take my kids away because there was no reason for anybody to take my kids away. It would have meant so much to me in that moment, and it would still mean so much to me now. Even if he did believe we could lose custody because I expressed suicidal thoughts, shouldn't he still have been concerned about my suicidal thoughts? Or am I just making him the scapegoat for my own issues when he did the best he could with a situation I created? So I feel like the letter writer is kind of asking for a verdict on who was right and who was wrong here. And it strikes me that that just might be the wrong question. Um, I know on the Dear Therapist podcast, I've heard either you or Guy say that in couples counseling, the client is the relationship, not either person. And the goal is to heal the relationship. And it just seems to me that this letter would better be framed as how can we get past this really painful time that we went through as a couple? What do you think? Yeah. Well, first of all, this, this just breaks my heart. This letter, it, it, it's so painful. She went through this horrible experience. Postpartum depression is just the loneliest, scariest thing. And he didn't understand it at the time, but what concerns me the most is that he had no curiosity about it. Mm -hmm that he didn't Google it. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. He would have learned a lot about how to help her if he had just Googled it, but he didn't even do that. So that Mm -hmm. wasn't going to put the custody at risk. That was just a Google search. So true. Um, And he would learn that the custody was not going to be at risk (laughs) if he had done that. Mm -hmm. And what concerns me even more is that he's so closed off to even having the conversation right now. 
So we talk so much in couples about rupture and repair that there's, there are always going to be ruptures. The question is, how do you as a couple repair that? Mm-hmm. And he just has no interest in having this conversation with her or understanding anything about the pain that she's been through. It made me and, wonder. And, um, I don't think I've, I don't want to sound like I'm making an excuse for him because I'm not. And I think the most important thing is the letter writer's perspective and the pain she experienced. But I wonder what was going on with him. Like, was he or is he still experiencing his own postpartum issues or his own depression? Because, again, I would love to have him here. Like, you have the the actual people with the problems on your podcast and find out, like, are you having trouble taking action overall in life? Do you avoid all your problems? Are you just generally shut down? Or was it just about this one issue? I have a feeling if I had to guess, I would say I think he was terrified. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't know what to do here. They have this new baby and he's alone in this because his partner is not functioning and she's it's a really scary situation that she's in and he's trying to do everything on his own. He doesn't know what to do. He's probably embarrassed. There's probably shame around this because we have this myth in our culture. Oh, look, you had a baby. Isn't it wonderful? Or how are you guys doing? I know you're sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Ha ha ha. Right. But, <laughs> right. But, um, you know, but isn't it wonderful? And no, it sucks. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. You have the child, but it's really, really hard on people and it's really mm-hmm. hard on couples. And then when you have one person who's not there and you feel so isolated and alone and terrified, and you don't know what to do. And maybe you don't have family or friends that you think will understand, or they'll think, or you're worried they're going to think she's a bad mom, mm-hmm. or you don't know what they're going to think. So I think he was terrified. And I think he was angry because he's like, whoa, I'm all alone in this. I didn't expect that. Right. And I think he might've been terrified that something was going to happen to her, mm-hmm. you know, because he loves her. And, and he, he may have felt that he was in a really difficult situation of you've you've dumped this huge dramatic problem on me and also told me that you're afraid if I share it with anyone else that our child will be taken away. And again, yes, there's Google, but I remember when I had a newborn, Googling things felt hard. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. busy, you're stressed, you're sleep deprived, everything is more overwhelming than it normally would be. So I can see how he might have just been... Um, just to- just totally overwhelmed by all the information that she gave him, which, and I can also see how that was massively disappointing to her. Right. And, and also I wonder how he's dealt with things like that in the past. Like when somebody is really struggling, mm-hmm. does he feel like I have to fix it? And then he felt helpless to fix it. And that scared him. What comes up for him when somebody is really leaning on him in this way and needs him? Mm. Some people are good in a crisis and some people are really bad in a crisis. It sounds like he's the right. latter. Yeah. Well, right. And also I think the thing about postpartum depression is, and any depression is, you know, when she's talking about, oh, I'm going to lose custody of the kids or the thing that people need to know about depression is I always say to people when they come into my office with depression, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now. Hmm. So all of the distorted thinking that comes with depression, like I'm a terrible mother and they're going to take my kids away and, you know, all of these things, that's the distortion of depression. That's the depression talking. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that, of course, but I think that's a really good sort of PSA to put out there for people who are listening that, you know, when somebody comes to you with all these distorted thoughts and they're depressed, understand that they're, they're thinking in a very distorted way at that moment. That makes so much sense. What, what concerns me, though, is how he's handling it now. 
I think it's understandable that, that this happened. It was unfortunate. But the fact that he won't engage in the conversation now means that something was brought up for him that goes beyond what happened between this couple. So we always say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Hmm. And that means that if you're having a a huge reaction to something Mm -hmm. that feels like it kind of goes beyond like, hey, honey, I want to have a conversation about this thing that happened. It was, you know, it's been three years and we haven't really talked about it. I want to kind of heal this between us. And he just absolutely refuses to talk about it. That's the there's something historical here, too, that's layered in. So interesting. So if you had um, this woman in your office without her husband and Mm -hmm. you were just trying to give her some guidance on how to process this or how to heal from what happened. Um, Not in couples therapy, but just with a letter writer giving her advice. What do you think you would say? The first thing I would say to her is first of all, I would validate her experience. Mm -hmm. I think she really needs to hear that she experienced something that many, many women experienced that there was nothing wrong with her that this happens. This is a hormonal change that happens. Some people have postpartum depression. Um, just normalize her experience and how alone she felt and how scared she felt. And I think the second thing I would do is I would say to open up this conversation with your husband, I think he hears you're wanting to talk about your hurt as blame, hmm. as he failed you, he did something wrong. So I would maybe open up the conversation by saying, I'm really curious about your experience. You must have been so scared. Right. Tell me what this was like for you. I really want to bring us closer. And I never asked about your experience. Can we start there? And he might say, yeah, it was terrible. And instead of her saying, oh, but it was really bad for me and you weren't there. It's let's hear what his experience was like first. Mm-hmm. And then maybe she'll have more compassion when she shares her own experience. Like, oh, now I understand why you reacted the way you did. This is so good for us to know about each other because there will be other crises in our marriage. There will be tons of them. And so let's talk about how we can be there for each other in the future when we have these crises because they will inevitably come up. So it's not just about what happened in the past, but it's about how do we how do we deal with difficult things that are inevitably going to come up in the future? Yeah, I love that you gave her the advice to ask him how he was feeling. And I actually remember listening to a Dear Therapist episode where you asked someone to actually speak in the voice of the other person in terms of what they experienced. So yeah. in that case, it was um, a man who had like fallen in love with someone else and left his wife. And a lot of the session was you asking him to describe the whole sequence of events from his wife's perspective or his ex-wife's perspective. Um, so I, I, w- I think even if she didn't want to have the conversation with her husband, maybe an exercise like that could be good here just to kind of to understand what he may have been going through. Yeah, I think I think so much of the time we're wanting something from the other person without realizing that they need something from us too. Yeah, and what she experienced, again, just to go back to it, was so painful. Um You know, in our culture, we hear all the time, if you need help, ask for help, reach out for help, get help, tell someone if you're feeling suicidal, if you're feeling really bad. And she did that. And the fact that she did it and got nothing, I imagine, um, was just incredibly, incredibly unsettling. And I can understand why she's still not over it. Um, Because add to that new phase of life, tons of hormones, anxiety, the actual depression. Um, There's just, there's so much going on here. And I guess 
to go back to the advice you gave in the beginning, um, I hope it doesn't sound trite, but I would encourage the letter writer to be really kind to herself and just realize that she, she was dealing with something incredibly difficult. She did the right thing and she did not get the response she deserved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think too, that what it does is it makes someone feel unsafe and what she needs to do in the marriage is really rebuild that trust that if I need you, I need to know that you will be here for me. Exactly. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Lori and I are about to tackle our last question for the day. Lori, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, the letter is titled Wedding Planning Paranoid. My fiance and I are very torn about what to do regarding our wedding. To be clear, we're both feeling very indecisive, but also want the same two options. We both love weddings. They're always incredibly fun, and we love being on the dance floor all night. That being said, we both have family issues to deal with. The most important is that we are minimalists. We live together for a year and have 99% of what we want. Instead of gifts, we would rather our family provide us cash gifts for our honeymoon, but we know both of our families will make the present giving all about them and just give us what they want. Second, we're worried that our families will ruin our big day in different ways. My extended family isn't very supportive of me, and I'm worried their apathy will hurt a lot. My fiance's family can be very dramatic, and we're worried about one or two of them causing a scene. We're lucky that we have very affordable options for our wedding, so the amount we would have to pay is pretty low, but we're both stressed about spending a ton of time and money on a day that will get ruined. So we've been thinking about eloping to Vegas with a few close family and friends and using the money to go on our honeymoon. We both like Vegas and think it has a fun energy that we can enjoy. That being said, we love weddings so much that we're worried about missing out on that. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and we're both worried about screwing it up and regretting our decision forever. What should we do? So just to put all my cards on the table, I'm pro-wedding. I push back on the idea that it's a one-day party that's a huge waste of money. I think it's actually, a, when you take the planning into account, it's a year-long experience where you're in this space of people really caring about your relationship really prioritizing your joy and your happiness. I think it solidifies your community. It deepens your connections to your spouse's loved ones. Like your the wedding is probably the time you're going to meet, you know, your spouse's uncle and high school classmate and whoever else and your mom is going to meet, you know, your your uncle and that never would have happened before. Um so I think it really it creates memories that otherwise wouldn't be created and I don't like to minimize. I think weddings are part of our culture for a reason and part of many cultures for a reason because they have that effect of like creating a deeper bond and a deeper community. That said, if you don't want to have one and it sounds horrible, you will be fine. Many people have gotten married with no wedding and had wonderful marriages and wonderful lives. Um, it's absolutely not a must. And I, I've never known anyone who chose to elope who spent the rest of their lives regretting not having a big party. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because the letter writer has really set this up as sort of a binary situation that if mm -hmm. we do this, it'll be ruined this way. If we do this, we'll miss out on this other thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to go into this wedding as something that is going to make you guys happy that will be flawed and imperfect. 
So Mm. if people go in thinking like, I need the perfect day, or I don't want this to go this way. I love what you said about bringing community together. That Mm -hmm. if, and and by the way, if these were people who said, we don't care about that, I would have a different response. But they're saying, we love weddings. We love everybody dancing. We love the whole community. We love all of that. Mm -hmm. We just don't like that some people might interfere with how it goes. And I say, you get to choose whether they interfere or they don't interfere. They'll probably screw it up in whatever way they do because people are consistent. But are you going to let that quote ruin your wedding? Or are you going to say, this is our, this is our community. This is, these are the people we love that are healthy for us and they're coming to this and we're going to celebrate with them. And then there are the kind of the dysfunctional people in our lives and they're still in our lives and they're going to be there too. And they're going to do their dysfunctional things, but we're not going to let it affect us. Totally. I I like the idea of it being sort of a snapshot of where you and your family and your friends are at that moment. So at my wedding, did my dad give a very, very, very long speech? Yes. Did he set a timer to stop himself? And did he talk past the timer? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I could have were, oh no, you know, my dad's going to talk too much. My dad's timer is going to go off. He's going to ignore it and keep going. But like, that's a funny memory that all my friends have. Um, And it's okay. I think I love what you said about embracing the imperfection because you bring a group of more than two people together and someone's, someone's going to do something wrong. Right. And that's okay. Like that's being human. That's life. That's having a family. That's having friends. Um, You can choose to just see it as part of sort of the texture of the people who surround you and accept it. Now I always get letters about people worrying that someone's going to cause a scene and no one ever really says what the scene is, right? So unless you're worried about like bloodshed or racial slurs or something, I don't want to be dismissive, but who cares? You know, someone, exactly. someone gets drunk and acts up on the dance floor. Someone is in the corner fighting with their spouse. Someone makes a weird comment. Okay, that's life. Everyone has a family. Everyone knows that these things happen. Um you can choose not to let it bother you too much. Also, just on a practical, like non-therapy note, people protect you from a lot on your wedding day. Um, I remember, like I've learned in the years following my wedding that two of my friends were in a pretty big fight. Um, One friend who traveled there had like a sick child at home. Another friend's spouse was like finishing his final paper for his master's degree and they had to run back to the hotel and deal with it. There's a lot going on that when you're, at the center of everything, you're not really picking up on because everyone's just being nice to you and making your day special. So consider that people might make a small scene or people might not have the best attitude and you can still have a great day. I had a therapy client who was so worried that her divorced parents were going to make a scene when they never saw each other and they were going to see each other for the first time in a long time at the wedding Mm -hmm. and didn't know what to do. And I said to her before the wedding, if they make a scene, isn't that hilarious that, that like, like that's a thing that you and your partner, like these people are going to be in your partner's life too. And now your partner gets to see, Oh, I understand my wife more because Mm -hmm. I get who her parents are. But also when this actually did happen and they made a small scene, not a big scene, but Mm -hmm. when this happened, her husband whispered to her, at least that's not never going to be us. And it was so reassuring. She's like, we are so much more functional than that. Like, we are never going to be that, even if we disagree. You know, like he was saying, like, we have such a solid marriage where her parents never did. Like, even on their wedding day, they had gotten in a fight, right? Oh, my gosh. So she was like, 
I have found a healthy relationship. And this is a reminder to me that I got out of that dysfunctional situation and I found this healthy relationship. So it just depends on how you react to it as opposed to worrying about whether it's going to happen. Things, Lots of things are going to happen that are out of your control. What you can control is how you respond. Right. I think it's the the old wedding industrial complex that makes us think that on our wedding day, everyone has to look perfect. Everyone has to feel perfect. Everyone has to be totally supportive. And that's too much pressure. And I think that's what leads to like all the stress around weddings is the idea of perfection. Yeah. But if you can just say, you know, we're, we're going to say our vows and we're going to eat cake and we're going to dance with our friends and around us on the periphery, People may be rolling their eyes. People may be having arguments. People may be giving bad gifts. It's it's okay because we're strong enough as a couple to handle that. And I just want to say, I think this is a lovely couple. The fact that they can talk about this so mm-hmm. openly with each other about here are the things that are important to me. Here are the things that I'm worried about. They're already on a great path for this marriage. I completely agree. Um, also, if there's some people who are really problematic, like you don't have to invite them. You don't have to invite everyone you're related to. There is like there's a certain amount of guest list management that could help um, decrease your anxiety about this. Absolutely. It's your wedding. You get to choose who comes and celebrates with you. Right. It, it's fine not to have one. Like by all means, save that money. I'm sure you do amazing things with it if you don't spend it on a wedding. But um, if you're inclined to have one, I, my vote, I'm just going to go ahead and make a ruling. Go ahead and have one. I know you're not allowed to do that as a therapist. You don't give advice like concretely like that, but I do. We do give advice. And I want to say what I'm hearing in that letter between the lines is we really want to have a party. We really Mm -hmm. want to have this. And so that's what I'm hearing. But then there's the hesitation. So I say, let's, we just, we just helped allay the hesitation a little bit. Go ahead and do the thing that you're really wanting to do. There you go. Go book the venue, put the deposit down. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been really fun and hopefully helpful. Thank you, Lori. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been so fun. You were incredibly helpful. I wish I could have you on as like a third guest every week. Because <laughs> you have really good insights. And I did take notes on some of the things you said. So I'll, I'll try to um, give you credit when I use them again. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I will say your advice was, was spot on. Oh, thank you. Listen and subscribe to Lori's podcast, Dear Therapists, where listeners sit in on real sessions with real people as Lori and her co-host, Guy, guide their guests through the everyday and extraordinary challenges of life. New episodes are available every Tuesday. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash pr. U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.